Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from Stats Newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca is recording from Stats San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, June 21st, and here's what's on the docket this week. The drug maker Sarepta Therapeutics just reported promising preliminary results from a clinical trial testing its gene therapy in three boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We'll break down the data and what they mean for the field. Federal prosecutors have filed criminal fraud charges against Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes and her former number two executive. We'll talk about what's next for Silicon Valley's villains of the moment. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is healthcare's biggest buzzword. But how do you parse out what's real versus what's not? Vijay Pandey, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz, joins us to talk about how he does it. And finally, we'll do a lightning round packed with hot takes about an IPO bonanza, a tool Gawande's many jobs, and profiteering by way of right to try. So let's talk about the big biotech data news of the week in the field of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. For anyone unfamiliar, Duchenne is a rare disease that confines boys to wheelchairs and condemns them to an early death. So right now, a single drug is approved to treat Duchenne patients, but its effect is limited and the drug can only be prescribed to Duchenne boys with a specific genetic mutation. So against that backdrop, the goal of finding a more effective one-time gene therapy fix for most Duchenne boys took a big step forward this week. So Sarepta Therapeutics, which is a biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, announced the first preliminary results from a clinical trial on its experimental gene therapy for Duchenne. And the data were, in some regards, jaw-dropping. Levels of a crucial muscle protein that's normally missing in Duchenne boys increased significantly, four times higher than anyone on Wall Street had really expected. And investors wasted no time rewarding the company for its efforts. Uh, Sarepta's stock price jumped, adding about $3 billion to its market value. That's like $1 billion per kid treated so far. So now let's walk through some burning questions about these data. I have a first question, and that's, you know, there are some skeptics out there that say that the evidence for this gene therapy is still too scant to be credible. And they do have a point to some extent, right? It's just three patients. So how much more data will Sarepta collect and when is that gonna happen? That's right, Rebecca. So what we have so far are data from just three boys uh, treated for three months. That's all we have right now. So the big question here, are those results reproducible and are they durable? And that's really going to take time. We're gonna have to see how these boys respond as they're followed for longer. And we're gonna have to see what happens to more Duchenne boys as they're treated with this gene therapy. But I mean, there's, there is genuine excitement, I think, right now with these data because it's not only this, this muscle protein that levels that have increased, but there are other sort of biomarkers and other things that they've looked at that have also kind of gone in the same direction that give confidence that these results are real. That's a key point, too, that you just mentioned. We're talking about biomarkers and measurements of proteins. The actual effect that these boys and their parents will want to see are like clinical demonstrations of being able to walk or of, you know, forestalling the effects of DMD, which, as we mentioned, is a muscle-wasting disease that eventually relegates people to wheelchairs and eventually lung failure. And that it will take even longer to generate with this. Right, absolutely. So this week, we didn't see any sort of objective data on whether you know muscle function is improving, whether these boys can walk better, uh, they can climb stairs. Now, they did show some videos of boys that look like they're improving, but that was really, honestly, that was a little bit of a stunt. 
I mean, what we really need to see is sort of the data collected on, you know, actual muscle function, and that is something they're going to have to collect over time. So let's talk about the field more broadly. Sarepta is not the only game in town when it comes to Duchenne treatments, right? Exactly, yeah, and so and specifically with gene therapies. So there's a company called Solid Biosciences, which is a startup that went public last year, somewhat controversially. They have a gene therapy that has run into some safety issues and so is a little bit behind Sarepta, and we probably won't see clinical data from them until the second half of next year. And then in between the two is Pfizer, the great uh, mega corporation we all know, um, which acquired a company in order to get a DMD gene therapy of its own, and clinical data from them is expected in the first half of next year. So Sarepta has another drug for Duchenne on the market, and there's quite an infamous backstory uh, to that drug's approval. Adam, can you give us the history? Right. So we mentioned that other drug uh, earlier. It's called Exondus 51. It is marketed by Sarepta. And yeah, it's controversial in that, you know, the approval was based on some kind of flimsy clinical evidence. And there was a, a segment of the FDA that didn't want to approve the drug, but they were overruled by Janet Woodcock, who runs the drug division of the FDA, who basically sort of pushed through the approval of Exondus 51 over the objection of a lot of people at the FDA. That was very controversial at the time. So I think what's interesting here is we can play a little bit of alternative history, right, Damien? We could say, you know, what would happen if Sarepta hadn't got Exondus 51 approved? You know, would they be in the position today to sort of be doing this sort of gene therapy? Well, and that's what's sort of fascinating. I mean, the, uh, I believe his name is Ellis Unger, who is a drug reviewer at, at the FDA, sort of famously described Sarepta's first drug as a scientifically elegant placebo because he was unmoved by its efficacy. But in the context of the gene therapy that everybody's excited about now, I mean, Adam, you talked to independent DMD experts who were like, this looks like the real deal, albeit with the caveats that it's early stage. And to your point, if that earlier scientifically elegant placebo is rejected as so many people wanted, Sarepta conceivably has gone bankrupt by now and doesn't have the money to fund the work that everybody loves. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the FDA's Janet Woodcock sort of had this in mind when she was thinking about sort of overruling people at the agency to approve that first drug. But yeah, if that would have happened, I think you would have kind of seen Sarepta have to retrench. You know, you would have seen them have to go out and maybe raise more money, lay off people, delay other projects. But you can make the case that a lot of this gene therapy work would have been delayed and we wouldn't be sitting here today kind of being really excited about a gene therapy for Duchenne had, you know, their first drug been rejected. So I think, you know, that's a legitimate case to make. So let's talk about the implications of these data for M&A. So what does this gene therapy do to Sarepta's takeout chances? Is this company going to stay independent or have the odds of it being acquired gone up? Well, so it's important to point out that Sarepta was previously a roughly $6 billion company. And as of the release of this data we're discussing is now a $10 billion company. And $10 billion is a large number of dollars, I think, by any metric. And if they were to be acquired, there would presumably be a premium. So we'd be talking about 13 to $15 billion. And so, I mean, one could argue if you were an investor and you were counting on this to be a boon to M&A odds, it was arguably kind of bad news because now they've entered the realm of if you're going to spend that much money on a company based on three patients worth of data, you're a pretty brave acquirer. Sarepta becomes a member of this class of biotech companies, this sort of mid-cap, they wholly owned assets that are really exciting, uh, look great, and because of that become M&A sort of targets. But investors getting really excited like they do sort of bid the valuations of these companies up. 
So that almost kind of works against you from an M&A standpoint. Um, you know, look, if what Sarept is trying to do, not only with gene therapy, but with some of the other things that are in their pipeline, they've got other diseases besides Duchenne that they're looking at that now look even better. You're starting to see analysts kind of put those other pipeline drugs into models. Yes, they are a takeover target. Uh, you know, are they more today than they were last week? Probably, but you know, again, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. Adam, Damien, let's board a time machine. Great, does that mean I get younger? <laughs> <laughs> That's not how time travel works, but where are we going? We're going back to a simpler, purer time. October 16th, 2015. We're going to the studio where Jim Cramer is recording his CNBC show, Mad Money. Lately, one of the most exciting privately held companies in Silicon Valley has come under fire. I'm talking about Theranos. That's the diagnostic... I can see it now. Kramer is interviewing Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of a blood testing company with tons of venture money and fawning press coverage. That is, up until now, because Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyrou just published a damning investigative story raising big questions about Theranos' technology. Here's what Holmes had to say about the journal's reporting. This is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. So Rebecca, you followed this whole Theranos thing pretty closely. What kind of penalty are we talking about here? In a word, it's serious. Holmes and her former number two, Sunny Balwani, could face up to 20 years in prison and up to $2.7 million in fines. So assuming this goes to trial, what are the odds that Holmes and Balwani actually get locked up? So that's a great question, and it's one that I posed to an actual attorney. Uh, Gabe Nugent is a partner at Barclay Damon, and he represents healthcare companies in criminal and civil investigative matters. So Gabe said that Theranos is something of a special case when it comes to fraud. On the one hand, Holmes and Balwani are accused of this $150 million in investor fraud, and you know that harkens back to Bernie Madoff, Martin Shkreli, and there's kind of a rote way in which those cases are prosecuted, investors were defrauded, etc. Where Theranos gets special is that there's this whole other list of alleged frauds that they perpetrated upon patients and doctors. Here's how Gabe characterized that. What you have is people whose sort of lives were played with. And so it, it essentially creates a um, sort of a sympathy vacuum for uh, Holmes and Balwani. And that sympathy vacuum could become particularly problematic when it comes to sentencing for Holmes and Balwani if in fact they're convicted, which is to say they might spend a lot more years in federal prison than Martin Shkreli will. So Damien, what do you think we can expect from the defense team in this case? How are uh, Elizabeth and Sonny Balwani, how are they going to defend themselves? Basically, what they're going to have to establish is that they didn't lie. I mean, basically, that all of the government's charges are incorrect. You know, the tests didn't end up working, but that they made a good faith effort to represent the risks when they took the money from investors, and likewise, when they sold the tests to doctors and, by extension, patients. What we haven't mentioned yet, which is a fascinating wrinkle about this, is that Holmes and Balwani are former romantic partners, and they are represented separately by different legal counsels. And so, Rebecca, I mean, this is something we've talked about a lot. There's this possibility that they will throw one another under the bus. I think it's a real possibility and one that I think could unearth new details about how they ran Theranos. Uh, I, mean, I think there's certainly an intrigue to the fact that they are exes who now have a pretty strong incentive to throw each other under the bus. Uh, so I think 
that will be a key element to be watching if the case goes to trial. All right, so Rebecca, how much public attention could a trial command? If you think about the big trials of the decades, you know, you look at the 1990s, which brought the O.J. Simpson trial. In the 2000s, you could argue it was Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. This decade, though, is still, I think, in search of, of a big, iconic court trial. And there's a possibility that it could be about blood testing in, in Theranos. I think it's worth watching uh, whether this trial captivates the public imagination uh, the way that past trials of corporate executives have. So lastly, what do you think is going to happen to Theranos, the, the actual company here? So last we heard, uh, the company was working on a technology that would test blood drawn the old-fashioned way, a needle stuck in the arm, rather than the promised finger prick that made Theranos so famous. Uh, but with the indictment out, Holmes is ousted as CEO. Uh, so I think her replacement, uh, the company's general counsel, is going to be in a very difficult situation. The company's running out of money, it has debts piling up, and uh, its creditor could seize the company's assets and force it to liquidate as early as this summer. So I think that's something we'll be watching closely. These days, there's no buzzier word in healthcare than AI. Companies are pitching artificial intelligence as a secret sauce to do everything from making drug discovery more efficient to predicting which patients will respond to treatments. Yeah, but how much of this stuff is legit? Joining us to tease out that question is Vijay Pandey, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz. That's the VC firm, you'll recall, that's famous for declaring that, quote, software is eating the world, end quote. Vijay joined Andreessen Horowitz in 2015 and spends his days evaluating pitches from life science companies that are increasingly promising to use AI. Before that, he was a professor at Stanford, leading a team of researchers working on developing new computational methods and applying them to medicine and biology. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Vijay Pandey. That's V-I-J-A-Y-P-A-N-D-E. Vijay, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. So AI is the biggest buzzword in healthcare right now. What exactly are people talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, AI is a very technical topic, so this is always a hard thing to do. But at its essence, AI is a type of machine learning where computers can learn from data, whether it be the way people do things or from other types of data, and draw inferences and make predictions. These predictions could be um, whether you have cancer or not, or looking at your mammogram. It could also be, in principle, uh, getting to the point where you could even design drugs. So Vijay, tell us about some of the specific investments that the firm has made in AI-focused companies. A great place to start is a company called Freenome. So what Freenome wants to do is to be able to come up with a cancer diagnostic that can tell whether you have cancer early, at low cost, and just from blood. The fantasy of this is to turn cancer, you know, this horrible disease, into something, you know, kind of boring. So with liquid biopsy, you know, essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to detect tiny amounts of DNA that come from the cancer cells that are in the bloodstream, and you're trying to get that as early as possible. What is the AI part of that? What Phenom's doing is actually, I think, distinct from other companies that are in this liquid biopsy bucket. Typical liquid biopsy means that, you know, you have tumors, they put out DNA, and you look for DNA from those tumors. The problem is that at early stage, tumors are really small. The amount of blood you're going to have to go through is ridiculous. What Freedom's doing is that they're looking at DNA, but also other analytes, to be able to detect what your immune system is doing. 
And this is a fundamental difference from sort of the liquid biopsy bucket. Now the problem is that uh, we actually don't understand the immune system. And so what they use AI for is that they have a series of samples from blood of people that are healthy and people that have cancer. And AI learns the differences from these different signals. And in a way that it'd be very difficult for a human being to wrap all that data into their head and come up with those types of analysis. One critique I've been hearing a lot of is, despite all the promises about AI transforming uh, drug discovery and, and healthcare, you know, the quality of the data is often terrible. It's messy, it's hard to work with. Uh, and some critics worry that's gonna hinder what AI can actually do. I think part of the problem is that when this data was collected, they were probably not collected with this in mind. They were not thinking 10 years ago we're going to have AI to, to run on this. So you have two options. You can clean the existing data or you can generate new data. And the generation of new data is maybe perhaps where the big wins will come or the sort of initial wins might come. So with clinical AI, I guess the potential, there's a potential risk of false positives, unnecessary or wrong interventions. And this is a lot different than you know, developing a social media app. We're talking about patients. Patient safety is, is really obviously very important. I think typically traditionally been two types of investors. There's been tech investors and biotech investors. And I think what we've been doing and, and others as well is uh, I think really a, a new type of investing where these are companies that are in healthcare and biology, but they can be built like tech companies. And so they have to have elements of both. So they have to have the rigor to, to make sure that test is accurate, to understand even just what you have to do to get into market, but also to build a company like a tech company, to build it by engineering. So we were talking about Freenome earlier. They could roll out a CRC test. For them to roll out a breast cancer test would be the exact same process, versus other competitors would have to start from clean sheet of paper with a new bespoke scientific process. That's the difference with engineering and sort of this tech set mentality that you could roll out in principle a new test much more quickly you know, and, and much more accurately learning from what one did before. You can't have a Silicon Valley venture capitalist coming into the office yeah. without asking about Theranos and whether or not that, you know, essentially what was a fraud. Does that hinder you in any way as you tried to fund and develop new AI-focused companies? Yeah, you know, Matt Harper on Twitter said it really well. He's like, not everything is Theranos. Maybe the real question is, how do you know what to invest in? So in the case of Freenome, before we put any money in, we gave them a blinded test. We gave them five blinded samples. They got it perfectly. The chance of doing that um, by random, the p-value is one out of 3,000. So other investors will ask, you know, where's your published paper? A published paper of p-value criterion is one out of 20 with anonymous referees that I don't know. I think my ability and my team's ability to go deep uh, on the domain and on the computer science, I think is, separates us from sort of having to rely on anonymous reviewers. And then giving perspective tests where there's no way they could have done it without the technology working. You know, that's what's gonna happen when they go to market anyways. And so we got to have a taste of it. On the flip side, what are some red flags that set off alarms for you uh, when you get an AI and healthcare pitch? I think one of the things that we're very much looking for is our teams that have deep uh, experience both on the AI side as well as in the domain. And by the domain, it's not just the scientific domain, but the go-to-market aspects. Healthcare is really challenging just because of also the complex payer-provider-patient types of relationships. And so the team that can have all of that is really the, the team that we're looking for. So last question for you, Vijay. There's obviously a lot of talk about how AI is going to replace a number of professions in healthcare, a lot of uh, hand-wringing over that possibility. We want you to rank uh, which jobs you think it's most likely to replace. Uh, so your options are the pathologists, the medicinal chemists, and the VCs. So we're not going to include journalists, right? 
Absolutely not. We are indispensable to this process. Uh, naturally, yeah, yeah. So, so obviously, so first off is that I think it's a little bit of a sort of false choice to sort of say that jobs will be replaced. I think they'll be transformed. I mean, pathology is a, a task where you want to be able to understand what's on the slide, and I could see how AI could really greatly accelerate what they could do. Uh, medicinal chemistry um, synthesis also is now being driven by AI, and there's been experiments there. But if you look to medicinal chemists in academia, many of them are really transforming themselves into chemical biologists and thinking about what can they use their great synthetic prowess to do to learn something new about biology. And again, giving them more tools uh, could only help. And, and VCs, uh, I think we're probably like, uh, we're, we're hopeless as it is. So I'm not sure uh, what, what, what AI is going to do. But there's been a lot of interest in applying AI to try to understand you know, what investments would be good. I think that might be some of the hardest. Uh, so I will selfishly assume that, that we're going to be fine. So, But in terms of ranking them, I think it's, it's hard to, to, to pick between the other two. I think both fields will be transformed. And so I think what the real opportunity is for these fields to transform where somebody needs to be the AIologist where you understand the pros and cons of AI, you understand its limitations, you understand where it can be used, and you use that technology in a medical sense. BJ, thanks for coming by. Oh, my pleasure, thank you. It's time now for another lightning round. It's my favorite time of day. All right, item number one. Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and JPMorgan Chase have picked the CEO for their new company to disrupt healthcare. And it's a surprising and kind of weird choice. Uh, Atul Gawande, the prominent physician, prolific writer, and all-around healthcare, I guess we can call him healthcare celebrity, is the new CEO. So if you know anything about Atul, he already had many, many jobs. And now he's adding a pretty big one. He's also not giving up some of his existing jobs. He wrote to friends and colleagues that he's keeping his positions at Harvard, at the Brigham, and that he will keep writing, including for The New Yorker. You go, Atul. I mean, you're making me feel like a slacker. So I think the predominant reaction from people was congratulatory and adulatory of Atul Gawande, but one takeaway that I thought was interesting was I think there were some people looking to this position, um, or to whoever these people would hire to be CEO, looking for someone who had experience operating a hospital or who had worked at PBMs or et cetera, by then picking a tool who is more so a visionary slash thought leader. I've seen people raise the concern of how serious is this exactly if a guy who's gonna continue filing 7,000 word pieces to David Remnick is technically the day-to-day -day leader of your company? I imagine that he is gonna be looked at as sort of the big ideas guy and that, that you know Amazon has like a small army of kind of operational execution managers below him that will sort of put all of his big ideas into place. But it's a good question about like, how is he going to sort of do surgery and write and teach and then sort of do this, which should be like a whole full-time job. All right, item number two, Damien, IPOs are a booming. That's true. So this week was host to the most active single day for biotech initial public offerings ever in the history of the industry. And that's according to Bruce Booth of Atlas Venture. There were five pricings on Thursday. The last record was four pricings on February 2nd, 2014. And we all know how that turned out. Yeah, so that's the other thing that maybe should temper some of this enthusiasm is the consensus on the heady days of 2013-2014 is that too many companies went public, some bad companies went public. And then when they eventually crashed and burned, some people lost a lot of money. So while I understand the sort of backslapping that's going on in venture capital circles right now, it's worth remembering that the wisdom of the market sometimes plays out over time and not on single day IPO returns. 
Damien, you just want to rain on everyone's parade. Speaking of rain and parades, Adam, this week a company with the sonorous name Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics did a thing that relates to Right to Try. What happened? This is kind of the inevitable thing that was going to happen after the Right to Try law was passed. Uh, this small biotech company, Brainstorm, is kind of pondering this idea of selling its unproven, still experimental stem cell therapy to ALS patients for a profit. You know, and under the law, there's some controversy about this, but apparently there's at least one legal sort of interpretation of the right to try law that allows companies to pick their price if they're going to offer a, an experimental unproven therapy to desperately uh, ill and dying patients. So that sounds problematic. What's the reaction been like to this news? So obviously sentiment is already running uh, sort of against the drug industry. I mean, a lot of people see, you know, drug pricing and sort of see profiteering going on. And now you've got a company out there who wants to sort of sell this experimental therapy at a profit to patients who are really desperate for something. Uh, it's probably not going to go over too well. And interestingly, the normally outspoken Twitter power user, Scott Gottlieb, who is also commissioner of the FDA, has not, as far as I've seen, spoken on this whatsoever. Well, yeah, the last time that Scott tried to say something critical about Right to Try, he kind of got scolded. So uh, maybe he's keeping his mouth shut now. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, Matthew Orr, and Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we would love to hear from you, whether it's recommendations for future topics, future guests, or future points at which we should steer away from issuing legal advice. We read your emails, and you can send them to readoutloud at statnews.com. Until next week, see you soon. 